welcome to the ABCA's podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Brownlee. This episode is sponsored by Netting Pros. Netting professionals are improving programs one facility at a time. Netting professionals specializes in the design, fabrication, and installation of custom netting for backstops, batting cages, dugouts, BP screens, and ball carts. They also design and install digital graphic wall padding, windscreen, turf, turf protectors, dugout benches, dugout cubbies, and more. Netting Professionals is an official partner of the ABCA and continues to provide quality products and services to many high school, college, and professional fields, facilities, and stadiums throughout the country. Netting professionals are improving programs one facility at a time. Contact them today at 844-620-2707 or info at nettingpros.com. Visit them online at www.nettingpros.com or check out Netting Pros on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn for all their latest products and projects. Make sure to let CEO Will Miner know that the ABCA sent you. Now on to the podcast. Next up on the ABCA podcast is Richard Kent. Richard did his undergrad work at Rutgers and got his law degree from Boston College. He represents basketball and lacrosse coaches. Currently is a sport law professor at Manhattanville and is the author of 11 books. In this episode, we dive into the current topic of NIL. It's a new frontier for all of us, so I felt it would be helpful to have Richard come on to give us a deep dive into what is going on currently and what the future might look like. Richard's 11 books cover a wide range of topics, including a couple on Roger Federer. Richard coached tennis in Manhattanville, so we do find a way to weave a little coaching, elite mindsets, and since he also represents coaches, we dive into some professional development as well. Let's welcome Richard to the podcast. Here with Richard Kent, undergrad at Rutgers, Boston College Law, represents basketball and lacrosse coaches, uh, sports law professor, and ex-tennis coach at Manhattanville. Uh, Richard, thanks for jumping on with me. Great. It's my pleasure. Any, did I miss anything on that? that no. I filled all the no, gaps I in? Mean, you don't have to talk about the fact that I've written 11 books. It's okay. <laughs> See, that's why I asked. <laughs> You know, and, and this is about NIL for, for maybe a coach that hasn't paid that much attention to it. Um, I mean, what does all this mean right now? Listen, we're, we're in a, a new frontier. I mean, I remember when I went into a store and I bought a gateway computer in the in late 1990s. And I said, I didn't even know what to do with it. I didn't know if I should put it on my bureau, if I should leave it in my basement, what to do with it. That's what's going on right now with NIL. Coaches, athletic directors are universally unprepared for this, especially at the mid-major and the low-major level. I mean, sure, Michigan and Ohio State and schools like that, and Alabama especially, Alabama ramped up really early. You know, they're, they're ready for it, and they've hired third-party consultants. you got to remember, the university can't be involved in this. They, they can't, the university can't reach out to the local car dealership in Ann Arbor, Michigan, and say, hey, you need to hook up with our quarterback because I think he's got value added for you. That's a no-no. And it's got to be a third-party facilitator who's working with the student-athlete. I guess I should say athlete-student at this point. 
okay, in, instead of student athlete and the potential sponsors. And and I was at mid majors forever. How how does a mid major cover their backside on on this right now? Well, I don't. When you say cover their backside, are you referring to not? referring to not having a recruiting advantage or, or, or committing violations, which one I'm talking about violations. They, they've got to hire somebody. They've got to hire a consultant. Listen, I'm sure that I'm sure that Alabama has three, five full-time people on staff. You got to at least hire a consultant and pay the person a hundred bucks an hour and run by that person. Or you should at least, I'm sure everybody's compliance office has at least somebody that's reading up on this, but it's but it's changing daily. I mean, we we now know, or we don't know because we don't know anything, but we now think that high school students may be eligible to sign NIL deals. And that's a whole nother can of worms. Um, you know, are they entertainers now? I mean, that, that's what I wrote down. Our, our athletes are, you know, we talk about Title IX. Um, is it more like they're entertainers now as opposed to athletes? I would say on some level that they're entertainers, but I think the larger issue is an analogy which I will make to free agency in baseball. I was a huge Yankees fan in the 60s, and I lived and died on what Mickey Mantle did. I hated Roger Maris. But as soon as free agency came in, it didn't affect Mantle, obviously. He, he played for the Yankees from 51 to 68. But as soon as free agency came in and players were only with a team for three to five years or so, I gave up my interest. And that that could happen with NIL. You're, you're going to see kids. I mean, we got the transfer portal now, which which I think is exaggerated because of COVID. I think this is the one-year exaggerated time period. And after that, it'll be less exaggerated. But we're also going to have kids jumping school with the transfer portal because of NIL. Wait, hey, wait a minute. What's going on in Virginia? Why am I at James Madison? What's going on in Virginia? I mean, I can I can play. I can maybe sit the bench in Virginia. I'm fine with that because I can make a hundred grand a year. You know, and and where's Title IX fall on all this? I mean, Title IX has has ruled college athletics forever, which it should be in fairness, but that kind of goes out the window now, doesn't it? Because you can't balance that out. If a, if a football player's signing a million dollar contract, you're not going to be able to, and that's why I brought up, are they entertainers now? Because a, a rock star that makes more than another rock star, nobody complains about that. An actor that makes more than another actor, nobody complains about that. Um, okay, you know, but, our, but, go ahead. But Title IX does not take into account Harrison Ford versus Julia Roberts. Okay. Title IX is still there. It was enacted in 1972. And the problem, and I, I'm going to take credit for raising this issue, I think, before almost anybody did. And I raised it with Len Elmore, who's a friend of mine. Len Elmore is now a professor at Columbia Law School. He teaches sports law, as I do at Manhattanville. But I raised that with him, and he thinks he thought it was a very valid point because it's it's almost impossible, given the fact that there's going to be an office at these schools, and there's going to be employees on staff that do NIL stuff to avoid saying that the school is complicit on some levels. So if the school is complicit, you have now invoked the and the uh, Title IX issues, and you're going to have, and I'm, I, this is not a sexist comment, because like at UConn, 
Paige Buchers, who's a, a, a women's basketball player, is going to make more money than any of the men's basketball players because of her TikTok followers. But in, a, in, an, in another type of situation with an Alabama quarterback, you're just, you're just not going to have that with a female athlete. So my suggestion was, and, and I, don't, I don't think any school has done it yet. Listen, we're only a month into this. But my suggestion is take a pot and put 50% of the money that your student athletes get from NIL into the pot and let the other 50% be kept by the student athlete himself or herself and divide that pot equally under Title IX mandates among other student athletes. And I, I thought maybe goes into a fund and then they get it after they graduate. You know, th- that was something that maybe I thought how it could work is that it goes into a general fund, then it's divvied out once an athlete graduates or leaves school. That's po- I mean, that's possible. Um, you, you've got to be, listen, here, here, here's, here's the, from 30,000 feet. We've got a U.S. Supreme Court decision, the Alston case, uh, Alston and the NCAA, in which we got, and listen, I'm a lawyer. We got a 9-0 decision. It's impossible to get a 9-0 decision with our U.S. Supreme Court. We have three factions in our U.S. Supreme Court. We've got three liberals, three conservatives, and three that follow Justice Roberts, kind of closer to the conservatives, but in the middle. They ruled nine to nothing. Brett Kavanaugh, who many consider to be a conservative, wrote a scathing indictment of the NCAA. I mean, everybody that's watching or listening to this needs to read Kavanaugh's dissent. You don't need to be a lawyer to read Kavanaugh's dissent in which he says, wait a minute, you got coaches making 9 million bucks. You got athletic directors making three and a half million bucks and you've got indentured slaves earning nothing. So he wasn't, he wasn't a happy camper. And it goes back to the O'Bannon case before that, that too. I mean, that kind of opened everything up, right? The O'Bannon case. O'Bannon opened it up and opened people's eyes, but didn't give out necessarily rights. It was the first, you know, that was the first likeness decision that we saw from any court. But so we have Austin. So that happens. It's argued in March. It's decided in May. I listened to the arguments on, on, you you can't watch them. You have to listen to them on the radio. So I listened on C-SPAN actually. So I listened to that. Then you've got state legislatures. I, I, it's more than 20 right now that have enacted legislation, but they're all different. Yeah. And you've got the federal government, you, you've got the Senate with Richard Blumenthal from Connecticut leading the pack that's enacted legislation. But given all that's going on in the Senate with infrastructure, with COVID and all that stuff, it hasn't moved anywhere. We need a uniform federal statute on this because the NCAA and Mark Emmert have punted on it. Yeah, because I mean, that that's where it's got to come from, right? Because I mean, the you look at Major League Baseball or any of the professional sports, you know, when they go to different states, you know, I always think about the comp ticket thing. I have friends that were big leaguers and they're paying taxes on the comp tickets. They're paying taxes in, in different states. It's almost got to come from the federal side to streamline it, correct? Yes, and you open up a can of worms with that. And I mean, what is from the federal side, how can they streamline this? I mean, how, how can they? I mean, if they're going to throw out legislation to everybody, like this is what you're going to do, how, how do they streamline it? Well, under the preemption doctrine, once federal legislation on point is enacted, it trumps, no pun intended, it trumps all the state legislation. You know, is, is there any pending? I mean, I know you yes. said it's... What is yeah. it? 
Blumenthal and I, I, I'm not sure who his co-sponsor is. In December, they they put together legislation which deals directly with NIL, which is similar to some of the state legislation. But they're on recess right now in August, and there's no there's no bill that's been formed. I'm sure if it I'm sure if it passes, and it should be bipartisan. Why you know why wouldn't Alabama and Massachusetts have the same interests? Why wouldn't BC and University of Alabama both want this? So it should have it should have a unity of interest, and I'm sure it would pass the Senate and the House. And there's no reason that Biden wouldn't sign it immediately. You know, you mentioned Paige at UConn. Um, I mean, athletes. This is obviously going to be good for the ones that it works out for. But what are the tax ramifications for them? They they got to pay taxes on it, and you're you're going to have you're going to have some auditing by the IRS in three to five years because these kids aren't going to know what the hell to do. I, I said it. I'm like, you know what? The federal government, state government just created a revenue stream out of thin air that was not there before that nobody, everybody's focused on the NCAA. If I'm a state legislator, federal legislator, I just created a huge revenue stream for the government with, with, out of thin air. Correct. And, and that's something that people aren't focusing on. And again, this is where you have to hire some outside help to be able to help athletes aren't good at, at the tax side of things. Anyway, you, you look at the professional athletes, the amount that have gone bankrupt, made millions of dollars because they don't understand the tax ramifications on any of this. Yeah. But these are kids. We're, we're, we're talking about an 18 year old kid who may only have worked at McDonald's once in his or her life. And, and what are you signing? I mean, you're seeing all these, these kids sign up to be barstool athletes right now. How many of them have even looked at, at what they're signing over to? Um, How many are signing over future earnings? For sure. You know, because, okay, yeah, it sounds great. I'm not even going to look through it. I'm just going to sign it. And it happens in the record industry all the time. Right. You know, what about for boosters? I mean, where, where does this fall in for a booster that wants to, to give? Boosters are good to go, except with once the kid signs the uh, letter of intent and has committed to the university, there's no prohibition on, on a booster saying, and, and listen, let's take the most egregious possibility. Let's take Nike, let's take Phil Knight, and let's take the best quarterback in the country who, who plays in Maryland, let's say. And are you going to have a bidding war between Under Armour and Nike for this kid? I mean, they, they can't do it directly to the kid or through the coach, but every kid at that level, the best quarterback in the country is going to have a handler somewhere and a strength and conditioning coach or somebody and they're going to go and nike's going to say you know we'll, we'll give you 500 grand over your four years to play at oregon and under armor is going to say how much did nike offer you you know we'll give you 350 or, or something like that i mean that's what's going to happen but once the kid is on campus and once there is a car dealership as i said in ann arbor michigan the and the owner of the car dealership gives a million bucks a year to university of michigan he can approach the athlete and say, hey, listen, I want you to make five appearances here uh, during the year and we'll give you 50 grand. And, and just saw where a, an athlete signed with a car dealership to get a vehicle. Well, that vehicle's taxable as well. You know, and that, yep. again, that's a might be a $60,000 car. You're going to get taxed on that at the end of the year. Yeah, that's a $15,000 tax bill. You know, what about coaches? You talked about mid-majors. And, and by the way, compliance officers at a mid-major have so many other things that they have to worry about to add this on their plate. Probably not going to – it's not feasible. 
say a coach is at a school that doesn't have these type of resources, how are they able to to handle all of this? They got to listen to your podcast. <laughs> I hope it helps, but I mean, just if I'm in a town somewhere and I need to reach out to someone, who who is the best person for me to reach out to if I have no idea how to handle any of this? You're a coach. Yes. You're you're the baseball coach at Appalachian State. Yes. Um, I I would certainly there's going to be in-house counsel at the university or a counsel that's on retainer. I would reach out to that individual. And, and, and these are, I always ask questions as if I was still coaching because these would be things that I would want to know if I was still coaching. And so that's, that's where I'm, I'm at with all of this, because there's just, there's so many things that you have to worry about on a day-to-day basis that this just adds another thing on your plate. Um, that again, you're trying to, to cover your, your backside on this stuff. Or I would reach out. I'm happy to speak with people. I would reach out to me. I mean, I've I, I've been involved in this since October of last year. I knew this was going to happen, um, and I've been assisting on an ad hoc basis a bunch of people. How can people get a hold of you? They could um, they could call me um, on my cell two zero three four three four. 3308, or they can email me at rkent, one word, K-E-N-T, at M as in Mary, B as in boy, N as in Nancy, LLP.com. And you talked about high school kids. So this is interesting, um, you know, because where does the eligibility piece for all this? Obviously, the the federal government says this is okay. Is there any sort of eligibility piece now with a high school kid that, that signs an NIL with something? You know, it's funny that you just said NLI because, (laughs) but I'm not joking. 50% of the coaches with whom I've dealt say NLI. Yeah. I don't know why. Well, it's ingrained in our brains. It is. That's, that's a rewiring thing. It's going to take a while to rewire from NLI to NIL. Yeah. But it, you know, it's real, it's really interesting. Um, As far as the high school students are concerned, you've got to look at the state right now. All we have is the state legislation. So you've got to look at the state legislation and see if there's a prohibition in your state on a, you know, we, we could bring it to a seven-year-old. How about a seven-year-old who's showing great promise as a pitcher? You know, there's 12, are, are years old, there's 12 year olds in the Olympics competing gymnastics right now and ping pong. So, I mean, it, yeah. it, it's, you have that option. Yeah, for sure. For sure. So if there's no prohibition in a state, in a piece of state legislation, a sixth man on a high school basketball team in Milwaukee isn't getting any deals, but there's going to be five Zion Williamson's out there that are, you know, juniors in high school. And we know that that kid is a one and done or is a Heisman trophy candidate after his freshman year. And why not reach out to that kid? What got you into law? I mean, what got you to this point? Well, those are two different questions. Um, when I, when I was growing up and I was in college, there were only two options. My friends either went to law school or medical school. So I, I had no interest in biology, so I went, I went to law school. I didn't know what it meant. Um, I, I, I may still not know what it means, but I, I went to law school. It gave me a foundation on a lot of levels, including, you know, public speaking, which is good. I mean, if I've, I've been before the U.S. Supreme Court, I've been before the Connecticut Supreme Court. I mean, those, that that's pretty nervous stuff. And, you know, once you've done that, you can certainly do a podcast with Ryan 
anytime that that's not a problem. So, I mean, I, I went to law school. I got a job with a law firm. I did have an opportunity in the 1990s to go to IMG and run their basketball division, but that ended up not happening. I wish it had because my, my passion is sports. And as, um, and as Sue Bird says, follow your, your passion, you know, not your head, because it'll usually work out and you'll never work a day in your life. But I, I've managed I've managed to do a bunch of stuff outside of the law. I, I, my true loves are college basketball and tennis. I've written two books on Roger Federer, and I've written a bunch of books on the Big East Conference, the Big Ten Conference, and college basketball as a whole. I wrote a book about last season. Um, here it is, actually, right here. A season like no other. What was your first just, book? Just, my first book was about father's rights in custody cases because I was the first lawyer, to my knowledge, that got custody of a three-year-old daughter for a father. And I wrote a book with him. He was an author. He wrote for Sports Illustrated also called Fighting for Your Children, A Father's Guide to Custody. Yeah, that so, doesn't happen when you look at the numbers. Very it happens to, now. It, it happens now. It, it didn't happen in 1992, but it happens now. How difficult was it to write your first book? It, it was less difficult because I was writing with an author. So he helped me do it. I, it. I couldn't have done it on my own. I did write a novel called The Racket. And I had written like five pages and I looked at it and I said, something's missing here. And I realized that I had no dialogue. I was writing a novel with no dialogue. So, but The Racket is kind of a cool book that I wrote about a, uh, a tennis, a kid who's a, an inner city kid who's a basketball player who runs into James Blake, who was a professional tennis player, uh, an African-American tennis player who played at Harvard, actually. And he becomes a tennis player. And his uncle, his uncle Hump, starts betting on him, unbeknownst to him. And they both get indicted. And we have a whole trial in the middle of the book. I mean, it's kind of a cool book. Have you read The Inner Game of Tennis? I have. It had has a cult following with, with baseball coaches, um, just oh, from, really? from a coaching standpoint. Yes. It's, uh, it's got some phenomenal information for coaches and, and what you should and shouldn't do. It's an interesting read. Um, well, te tennis players are not only tremendous athletes, uh, but they also have to be so strong mentally. I mean, listen, we, we're watching the whole stuff with Naomi Osaka right now. And we also just watched the greatest tennis player. And I hate to say this cause I'm a federal guy, but we just watched the greatest tennis player of all time, Novak Djokovic, completely melt down in a bronze medal match at the Olympics, no less. And Simone Biles, and, I mean, she and to Simone Biles' credit, she got back on the she got on the beam, and and won bronze when she had completely taken herself out. And I give her a lot of credit because I don't know how many people out there that are that strong mentally to basically get the yips for gymnastics, and then find a way to to compete still within a, a two-day period. I don't know how many people are, are strong enough to be able to do that. Well, I mean, she is the greatest gymnast of all time, so that gives her a bit of an advantage, I would think, over you and I. I couldn't stand on the beat, so it couldn't be me. But um, the reason that I completely sympathized with her and I didn't 100% sympathize with Osaka was because Biles could have killed herself in, in midair. I mean, Naomi Osaka can hit a few double faults and can hit a few balls out. But, you know, I, I always analogize playing. I mean, I was a decent tennis player. 
I always analogize playing tennis to riding a bike. I mean, if I, if I didn't play from October through March and then I played again, I'm not going to forget how to play tennis and I'm not going to get hurt. What stuck out to you about Roger Federer? Roger Federer is the most graceful, beautiful athlete that I've ever observed. And I've seen him five feet away after a five setter without a bead of sweat on him. Without a, it's unbelievable. He is effortless. And he, he doesn't have one great stroke. I mean, he only serves between 119 and 125, but he, I was able to sit down with him in New York once. And he told me that when the ball is up in the air during his toss, he takes a quick look at his opponent and he changes his serve as the balls that he's one eye at his opponent to see if the, if the opponent is leaning left or right. And he changes his serve in the air. Um, he has, he doesn't have John McEnroe like eye hand coordination at the net, but he's got tremendous eye hand coordination and he's got perfect strokes. Was that something he developed on his own looking at the uh, opponent while he's tossing the ball? He did. He did. And, you know, I, I spoke Djokovic and I spoke Federer. You got to give credit to Djokovic. Djokovic started playing tennis on the bottom of the swimming pool that was drained for the winter. He grew up with no money at all. Federer grew up in Basel, Switzerland at a country club. Yeah, you've seen some good examples in this year's Olympics. The girl from Alaska, there's only one 50-foot pool in Alaska. The guy who won gold in surfing started surfing on a styrofoam lid because he couldn't afford a surfboard. It's actually only one 50-meter pool. You've got to be more precise on that. <laughs> I'm not good with metrics. Right. <laughs> the metric system gets me. You know, you represent coaches. Um, what are some things that are setting coaches apart that are getting jobs? I'm, I'm going to, I mean, listen, if, if, if you're, if you're John Shire and you didn't, you didn't take, you didn't get the Duke job or you didn't take it, you're certainly getting at a minimum Wichita or Boston college or Penn state or something, because he, he sat on coach K's bench for seven years and he developed that cachet. But if you're not John Shire and you're talking about the resume in the interview, you're not going to get in a relationship with a search firm. You're not going to get in the front door if you don't have if you have a resume with a mistake. If you have a resume that's two pages long and you have to squint to read it. I mean, I don't know if you do. You ever read Phil Steele's College Football? I don't. Uh, okay, there's nine thousand words on each page. Okay, I. I get crazy because I want to read it in July because I haven't read anything about the sport. And then I look at it and I can't read it. So, uh, and I've just spent $19 and 95 cents. Uh, I don't know if he's got any typos or not, but in terms of the resume, you can't screw up on the resume. You've got to write a good resume and you've got to have, I'm, I'm telling you at the beginning of an interview, you got to have eye contact. You got to have a firm handshake. And you got to do the 70-30 rule, which I believe in. You've got to ask as the interviewee, EE, interviewee, 30% of the questions. You talked about Coach K, and we talk about finding mentors a lot on this show. How do you find the right mentors out there that maybe are going to allow you to, to grow professionally, but then give you an opportunity to get your next job? I think it's a lot of luck. Yeah. I mean, I, 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 know, I know a coach 
I'm going to say it, an Ivy League coach, let's put it this way, who has no godfather, okay? When he's applying for a job, other coaches have a Coach K. Other coaches have a, um, a John Calipari. He's got no such person to pick up the telephone and to call the AD at whatever university to help him get a job. So a lot of it is predicated upon your early job moves and who you end up with. But there's a lot of luck involved. I mean, who knew that working for Coach K in 1982 would be a bonanza? Because Coach K almost got fired at Duke after his first three years. Just as Dean Smith almost got fired at UNC after his first three years. They hung Dean Smith in effigy because he had a losing record. When do you know it's time to reach out to maybe an agent or a search firm? You know, if you don't have one and you're coaching or along in your career, when is it time to reach out to somebody? Personally, I think at a high level or at least at a, at a high mid level, I think you're foolish to not have an agent. You're not paying this person a retainer. You're not paying this person an hourly rate. When I practice law as a litigator, I get $550 an hour. You're not I could work for 30 hours for you to try to get you the coach at James Madison, the head job at Virginia, and not get it. And I don't get a dime. Okay, I don't get one dime. I mean, if you do get it, I get, let's say, 3.5% or whatever. I mean, Is that the, standard the still, 3.5%? Is that pretty standard? I've seen 3.5%. I've seen 4 I've seen 5 uh, Very few fives, but yeah. Say there's a coach out there that, that isn't at that point. What's the best way to navigate the contract process? I th- always felt like I was lost reading contracts. And, and you're not at that point where maybe you don't need someone. What's the best way well, to navigate those contracts? You do, you do need somebody to, to spend two hours reviewing the contract and charging you 600 bucks Because that 600 bucks may save you $20,000. So why not? I mean, you're going to call somebody, you're going to call somebody like me, let's say, and say, hey, listen, I got this job. I didn't need an agent to get it. They gave me a contract. What does it mean? What does this buyout mean? You know, like, what should it be a diminishing buyout after three years? I mean, what does it mean? Tell, tell me what I should ask. Yeah, let's talk about buyouts because you hear it all the time, but don't necessarily understand what it actually means. What what are some buyouts, and and what does it actually mean if there's a buyout in the contract? Well, I'm not I'm not going to. Well, a buyout means let let's say that you're at Virginia and you have, you're at James Madison and you have a five hundred thousand dollar buyout and you get the Virginia job. You've got to, either you or or Virginia's got to pay James Madison five hundred grand. So there's a couple of cases. There's a Rich Rodriguez case at West Virginia when he went to Michigan. And uh, there's a California case as well. They're, they differ in their decision, their, the holding of the case. The argument that Rich Rodriguez made was, I had a $5 million buyout. It didn't cost you, West Virginia, $5 million to find the replacement for me. I mean, take an example, and I and I know of one. I was involved in it, in which a head coach took another job, and the AD simply walked down the hallway and asked the associate head coach if the associate head coach wanted the job. The associate head coach wanted the job, and the head coach had a $1.5 million buyout. So I actually helped arbitrate that. And he settled it for eight hundred thousand. So he still had to pay eight hundred grand, but he saved save seven hundred grand. 
And you talked about diminishing buyout. So is that more of a longevity? If I'm here this long, um, you know, is that a piece of the buyout? If I'm here for four or five years, does that buyout go down? Yeah, I think Patino at Iona has a ten had a ten million dollar buyout, and after five years, it goes down to a million, and that's pretty standard. Those numbers are high, but listen, I, Iona said we're not going to go through the aggravation of hiring you and everything that goes with it. If if you're going to bolt, you know, for Boston College in a year, what do you wish somebody would have told you before you got into practicing law? I think I I would have liked to have known more about the different disciplines of the law from somebody, you know, what is tax law? What is real estate law? What is, what is a litigator? How do they all differ? You know, which, which is more stressful, which is, which is less stressful, which, you know, where are you going to make the most money? Where are you going to be the happiest? I didn't know any of that stuff. What sort of organizational tools are you using for your job to help you stay on your schedule? I mean, I have a, I have a Google calendar. Uh, I mean, I, I have an assistant. How, how much does your assistant handle for you? Well, I'm, I'm phasing out of the actual practice of law in, in doing all NIL and coaching representation starting in September. So not much now, but when I was at a large law firm, I was at three larger law firms. My assistants did a whole lot of stuff and we used to bill out my assistant's time. You've been doing this a while. Your coaches that have developed and stayed in it for a long time and had longevity, what sticks out to you about those coaches that have been able to, to maintain a longer career? I mean, he's not, he's not my client, but like Kirk Frentz at, at Iowa. The, I was there for nine years. I, I got a, up close and personal with him for nine years. Yeah, I mean, just dogged, dogged loyalty, dogged determination to the job really good with alumni, really good in the community and a good relationship with athletic directors. I mean, the, the problem you're going to have with longevity is you're not, you're ultimately going to be working for an athletic director who didn't hire you. And that's a problem. Um, he's in, been lucky that way though. Cause he's only had three there. I mean, he, okay, he, but he's that, really only had three and however many, you know, he's 20 plus years he's been there. He's only had to deal with three. It's still three. I mean, I, don't, I think Coach K's had at least three. Uh, he's had more than three, actually. But, but Coach K is bigger than than the AD at the university. I mean, obviously, he picked his replacement. I'm not saying that the AD wouldn't have picked John Shire, but he picked his replacement. So, you know, a great relationship with your athletic director is certainly important. And I, I know some coaches who have followed their athletic directors to to the next to the next place. Yeah, it makes a huge difference who you work for. Yeah. Yeah. I know that I know that the AD at Yale was the AD at Colgate before. And most of the AD's staff at Yale right now is the Colgate staff. And I think when there's a big opening at Yale, that AD is going to look at a Colgate coach. Do you have a fail forward moment? Do you have something you thought was going to set you back? But looking back now is one of the best things that ever happened to you. Yeah. And when I when I went to a uh, cocktail party in Stanford, Connecticut in 1996, I think, and Mark McCormick from IMG was the guest speaker. I had no idea that I was going to develop a personal relationship with them. I, I mean, I'm I'm kind of encyclopedic about Arnold Palmer, Mickey Mantle, and Roger Federer because <clears throat> I've only had three sports idols in my life, and it's actually Federer is younger than I am, so it's tough to call him an idol. He's just you know Palmer and 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 mantle it was easy 
But I, I went up to Mark McCormick at the cocktail hour and I spewed out 90 seconds of facts about Arnold Palmer. And he said to me, you know more about Arnold than Winnie, who was his wife at the time. And I mean, it, it became crazy because I, I did get a job offer at IMG. And I also then was able to have lunch with Arnold Palmer at Bay Hill Country Club. And he was he was stat he said, did you prepare for this lunch? I didn't even know I was going to have the lunch. He was staggered at the amount of information and knowledge I have about him. I mean, that that's what happens when, you, when you're just totally immersed into somebody. What drew you to him besides all the, the championships? What drew you to Arnold Palmer? I was, I was a kid when I saw him play, but unbelievable, unbelievable charisma. I mean, he looked at you. And people say this about Bill Clinton. I've actually, I've actually been with Bill Clinton, and I didn't think it the same way as Arnold Palmer. But when Arnold Palmer looked at you, you were the only person in that gallery of thirty thousand. Also, Arnold Palmer signed every autograph, and his signature is identical on every autograph, and his signature is perfect. I've watched some professional tennis players sign autographs. It's three squiggly lines. You have no idea who that person is. Arnold Palmer also perfected the walking autograph. He would he would get a ball or a, a hat and he would be walking and he would sign it. He would have a Sharpie in his pocket and he would sign it while he was walking. He was the first person to do that. And Mantle had an infectious personality too. He did, but Mantle only signed 10% of his autographs. Pete Sheehy, who was the clubhouse boy for the Yankees, signed 90% of his autographs. And I've, I've got a Mickey Mantle autograph, and, I'm, and I say every once in a while, I know he signed this one, but I know he didn't also. That's why you need an authenticator. I, I ran right. a leadoff dinner forever, so that was the important piece of actually getting uh, a higher bid was if the uh, authentication came with the item that you were auctioning off. Well, I, I just spent 22 days on the Roger Federer auction. He had an auction in which the proceeds went to his charity, which is the Roger Federer Foundation Education and Tennis for Kids in Africa. And I ended up with his tennis racket from the 2011 Paris Masters, his outfit from the 2014 uh, Italian Open and his belt which I was praying and hoping I could get expanded so it would fit me, but it doesn't from the 2000 Olympics. You have any morning or evening routines that you like? I mean, you're a writer. So is that part of your morning routine? Do you spend time? They call it pages. Do you, do you spend time writing every morning? I always spend time writing if I'm writing a book. And if I'm writing a book, I do it in a very unorthodox fashion. I write one page a day. I don't write two, pa- I don't write two pages a day and I write on Saturday and Sunday. So I have, when I've left off on Friday with my page, it could be 11 in the morning, it could be 11 at night, I know what I'm going to write the next day. How do you get back in the routine of writing when you've, you've stepped away from it for a while? It's, it's difficult. I mean, you just, you, you just got to do it. I mean, it's, it's not Simone, Simone Biles-like concentration, I promise you that. So is that where your inspiration comes? You find a subject that you're going to write on and then you go to it? Yes, yeah. So that's knew, your, your your muse is the is the subject. Yeah, I knew that this basketball season, college basketball season, was going to be wild, and I just felt I, I just followed it right from the beginning. And I actually have a chapter in my book about a mythical Ivy League season because the Ivy League was the only league that didn't play. 
So I took the Ivy League through an entire season that didn't happen. How did it finish? Yale won it. Because, I mean, it finished the right way because Yale was the right team. Love it. Okay, let's circle back to the NIL here. What are some resources that coaches need to dive into if they want to start to try to get a handle on this? Besides the Austin case. I would read Austin. I would read the legislation in their state, assuming that there's legislation. I would talk with their compliance officer. And there's a lot of third-party companies that are that are involved. And I would reach out to one of them and, you know, give consideration to speaking to the athletic director about hiring them. All, all the power fives we know of or, or, or have already hooked up with one of those companies. What about a student athlete, an athlete that's listening in? What about them? You're talking about a high school student or a college student? Both. Yeah, High school students, I think, are few and far between. For college, I would speak certainly with the compliance officer at the school. I would speak with the coach at the school. You know, once again, if you're if you're the sixth man at James Madison, there's not, there's just not going to be an opportunity. One one thing that you might be able to do that you couldn't do previously is work at a baseball camp if you're a baseball player and get paid for it. I mean, it was kind of silly that if you were a violinist. At Yale, you could get paid $50,000 to go to Carnegie Hall and to do a concert and still be on a financial aid scholarship at Yale. But if you were a basketball player, you couldn't work at James Jones's basketball camp and get paid for it. I mean, that made no sense to me. And that was one of the arguments before the U.S. Supreme Court in the Austin decision. That's probably the best thing that comes out of all of this is eliminating some of the red tape uh, from a compliance standpoint. Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. Any final thoughts? I know you got a meeting right after this, but any final thoughts? Yeah, I think I think it's I think it's a great time to be a student athlete. I think it's a headache to be a an athletic director and a coach, but it's listen, there's only a finite number of scholarships. There's only a, there's still only a finite number of players. Forget the the aberration of the COVID year. COVID year. There's still only going to be 15 women's basketball players on scholarship. There's still only going to be 13 men's basketball players on scholarship. So. Alabama may Alabama with better a better state legislation is going to have an advantage over Michigan, but Alabama has always had an advantage over James Madison, and they're always going to continue to have one. So maybe for a discrete period of time, one or two years, you're going to have a few quarterbacks choosing a school because of NIL and not because of Jim Harbaugh or Nick Saban or something like that. But ultimately you're still going to have the same level player going to the same level school. I agree with you on the transfer portal piece, by the way. Um, I, I think I think we're a year or two where it, it levels back out. Uh, one, you're going to see so many kids that still need places to go to school here in the next two weeks. And I, I think... But it's not going to happen. Yeah. There's no place to go. Yeah. Is, and yes, for can, sure. Can you imagine a kid that was, you know, sixth man at... At, I, I don't know where, pick any mid-major, thinking that he's going to get picked up at a high-major school and he doesn't get picked up in his mid-major school is either said, the heck with you, or we've already filled your scholarship. You're done. I mean, that was horrible advice. Horrible, horrible. Yeah, it's one of those. It's just it, it, it's a new shiny thing, and this started three years ago. You saw it as soon as the transfer portal opened up. Kids wanted to announce that they were going in it without even thinking about what they were doing and the decisions that they were making. Yeah, I mean, so there's going to be 50% fewer kids in 22 doing that, and then 
by 25, there's going to be 10% of the kids doing it. Richard, I really appreciate you jumping on with me. No problem. And, you know, as I said, for any of your listeners, student athletes, coaches, ADs, I'm happy to speak with you. I'm happy to answer your questions. And if building a relationship ends up happening, you know, that's fine as well. Appreciate it. No problem. We're in a pivotal time for college athletics. It's on all of us to research what is going on so we are more informed to help our coaches, administrators, and athletes. Thanks so much to Richard for coming on with me. The NIL is still a subject I'm trying to learn about, and I appreciate his insights. I hope this episode helps everyone gain some more knowledge on NIL. Thanks again to John Litchfield, Zach Kale, and Matt West in the ABCA office for all their help on the podcast. Feel free to reach out to me via email rbrownlee at abca.org, Twitter at coachb underscore abca, Instagram ryanbrownlee17, or direct message me via the MyABCA app. This is Ryan Brownlee signing off for the American Baseball Coaches Association. Thanks, and leave it better for those behind you.